My name is Melissa Embry, and I've been a member here at Cross City essentially all of my adult life. So my role on the ULIS campus team primarily is because I am the chairperson of the Budget and Finance Committee. Also, though, I am a representative of the student ministry. I have a group of uh, ninth grade girls. I've actually been with my girls since they were preteens in fifth grade and uh, moved up to student ministry with them. And they are really um, my passion for ministry. I think the thing that excites me the most about the project that the Yules campus team has been working on is just being able to see the openness and the guest-friendly um, way that things are laid out. Bringing our student ministry um, over onto the same side of the street as the rest of the church family is a real positive thing. Um, I think it's important for the kids to understand that we are one church, that our students don't feel isolated across the street, that they understand that they're a part of a much bigger church family that loves them and supports them, and that they'll see that unity in our church, even with people they have nothing in common with, even with people who are not their age. And I think that's really gonna send a message to our students that, hey, we really care about you. We care about um, your spiritual growth. We care about your future. And I think that's something that's gonna really be important, you know, as we consider all the different components of this project, that that, that next generation is really gonna benefit from, hey, you know, not just my student ministry leaders, not just my small group leader, everyone in this church really cares about us. Ross did a great job of articulating one aspect of uh, what we're going to be proposing and sharing next week, but it's a high priority on students, on children, on the next generation, as well as other aspects that will impact every single one of us in this room. So I want to encourage you next Sunday morning to not miss what we're going to be doing. I'll be sharing uh, during the message time, biblically why, how, what, all the details that we can share, we'll share this next week. Do not miss it. But today, if you have your Bibles, I want you to take them and turn to John chapter 1 today as we conclude our Jesus One and Only series. And I'm thankful that I have a group of graduates in front of me today because today is one of the most important messages that I could share with anyone who's about to move out, uh, perhaps their home and certainly their locale and going to college or going to work somewhere. That is uh, being, uh, being shown all different ideas of how we find our way to God all kinds of religions, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of nations are gathering. And what is the real answer to how we have access to God? What does Jesus Christ really bring that no one else brings to the table when it comes to our spiritual life? And over the last four weeks, we've looked at John chapter 1, where we've seen that Jesus is eternal, Jesus is creator, Jesus is life and light today. Jesus is revealer. He reveals God in a clear way. Let's stand together as we read John Chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, five of the greatest verses in the Bible. You may be familiar with these verses, especially verse 14, but all these speak to us powerfully. Here's what it says. John says about Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. The word saw means to behold, to be amazed at, to, to wonder at. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him, 
saying, crying out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained, he has revealed, he has manifested him. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand this. Father, in Jesus' name today, our prayer is that we will walk away from here today understanding, even proclaiming, and even worshiping around the fact that Jesus is the one and only. Today, I pray that you will answer questions that are in people's minds, that you'll help us know about the superiority, the greatness of Jesus for our lives and for eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. Jesus wanted only, this is the last message in that four-part series, and uh, it's been a great series to walk through, just focusing on Jesus and what John says about Jesus. And all through the Gospels, you'll find Jesus making statements like these next two statements. One statement, one question. And these are important statements and questions to consider in life. In one of these passages, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus made this statement. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And someone would look at that verse and say, well, that's pretty exclusive. You mean there's not multiple ways to God? There are not many ways to get to the top of that mountain where God is? And Jesus says, no, there's only one way, and I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, that doesn't mean that Christianity is an exclusive religion. It means that Jesus is an exclusive Savior. Anyone can come to Jesus and by coming to Jesus, know God, be forgiven by God, have a relationship with God. But Christianity is not exclusive. It does not exclude anyone. The Bible says all who believe may come. Whoever believes on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, shall be saved. Jesus also asked a question as he was walking in his earthly ministry for three years to his group of disciples. And those questions were twofold. One, who do people say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And the disciples responded by saying, well, some say John the Baptist, and some say one of the prophets. And then Jesus zeroed in on this question. He asked Peter, but who do you say that I am? The most important question you can answer in your lifetime is that question. Who do you say Jesus is? The most important question is not what kind of a job are you going to have in life? Who are you going to marry? The most important question that you can ask is not what kind of car will you drive or where will you live? How long will you live? How healthy will you be? None of that is important in light of this all-important question. Who do you say Jesus is? Because everything rides on that. Amen. Eternity rides on that. And so in answer to the question, who do you say Jesus is, John educates us as to who he understands Jesus to be. If you walk through John chapter 1 with me, you'll see that he said that Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. That's what it says in verse 1 and 2. And then it says, all things came into being by him, and nothing that has come into being came into being apart from him. So Jesus is also creator. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So he also says Jesus is not only eternal, not only is he creator, but he's also light and light. Every aspect of light you need in life doesn't come from within, but it comes from Jesus. 
He gives direction. He gives wisdom. Right? He gives wisdom as only the creator of the world could give, as the only eternal God could possibly give. He knows the end from the beginning. And because of that, we want to know who Jesus is and we want to rightly relate to him. We want to be mesmerized by who Jesus is. You know, we live in an age of virtual reality. And most of us know that virtual reality means not quite real, but as real as you can get without not quite being real. And virtual reality is kind of a fun thing. I mean, I'm kind of technology uh, fascinated. I love to see the latest. I mean, I do not watch black and white TV on a cathode, cathode ray TV. Most people don't know what cathode rays are anymore. I'm not even sure I know, but it was a big box and just had black and white images. And then we graduated to uh, color TV, the big Magnavox, the big Zenith. It was about the size of a dresser, if you remember. <laughs> and the only remote control was your children. Go change the channel. <laughs> and there are only four channels to have, so it was easy to do. And then we moved from there to desktop models and bigger, and then before long we had high definition, and from there, 4K television, LED, 4K, 3D, all that stuff, man. I'm mesmerized by technology, and the design of virtual reality technology is to immerse you in an experience so that you can almost not even tell that it's not real. In fact, when you go to a 3D movie, you actually flinch when the superheroes come your way or the villains come your way. You actually flinch because you are almost convinced that it's reality instead of virtual reality. Virtual reality has everything to do from Google Earth, where you can go from the outer space to zero in with a computer experience to get close to where you live. Uh, virtual reality experiences such as games and sports and nature we even see today virtual reality advertisements where you can get in a Volvo XC90 and take a drive through mountain passes in virtual reality to experience the car before you unload $90,000 on that car. Virtual reality brings you to the point of almost being in reality and it mesmerizes you. Yeah, why are you talking about virtual reality? Why are you talking about being mesmerized? Because John was mesmerized by the person of Jesus. And it wasn't virtual reality. It was God in the flesh. When you see the life of Jesus, you're not looking at someone that looks a little like Jesus or like the Father. It's not someone that acts a little bit like the Father. It's not just a poor reflection of the Father. You're looking at someone, John says, who is literally God in the flesh. John's point was, we experience God through the person of Jesus. Man, what a picture, what a statement he made, and he backs it up with detail. John says in this passage several things. First of all, he says what he became, what Jesus became. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John states this fact. Jesus, who is fully God, came to earth and became fully man to live among us. Wow, that's a powerful statement. Jesus, who was fully God and not of this world, has now come to earth, John said, and he has become fully man, fully God and fully man at the same time. And John says he dwelt among us. Literally, the word means to, to encamp or to pitch a tent next to us and live with us. And this is called in theological circles the incarnation of God. That is, God came in the flesh. Incarnation is a word that means in flesh. So you have God 
in the flesh, right in front of John, who washed him and lived among him for three years while he was on planet Earth. Now, how does that happen? Theologically speaking, we have a diagram we use from time to time, and that diagram helps us explain the triune nature of God. That is that one God and three persons manifest himself throughout history. If you look at the red triangle, you have the representation of God. God is Father, God is the Son, God is the Spirit. But these three are one God, one God in three persons. See, God is not finite like you and I are. You are just you and I am just me. But, but Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and the Father is God. They are three in one. Now, they are distinctly different persons as well. And that's part of the supernatural, mysterious power of God. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, but these three are still one God in three persons. And what John is saying is, I was able to see God the Father in an immersive experience that looked like as I was walking with Jesus. That's how I learned him. That's how I learned about God. What he became, he became fully Man and fully God. Now, Paul writes about this in, in the epistles, and some of these verses are amazing verses as to describe what Paul understood years later. For example, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, the Bible says in one of those amazing verses, a brief verse, and yet this verse packs so much incredible and theological and, and impressive truth, and here's what it says. For in him that is in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. When you look at Jesus and consider him, you're not just considering a good teacher. He's also not just a prophet. He's also not just a miracle worker. He's also not just the guy that walked on water and multiplied the bread. He did all those things, but not just those things. He was God in human flesh. All the Godhead dwelt in that bodily form that we know as Jesus. Paul said also in Philippians chapter 2 in a more detailed description of this, he said, have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Wow, so this eternal God was allowing himself to be made in the likeness of man. He came in a human body to live among us, to walk among us, to demonstrate to us who God is. Now, this is not a new idea. As a matter of fact, John is writing this just years after Jesus' resurrection, after his death, burial, and resurrection. And for hundreds of years after John wrote and after Jesus walked on earth, Key followers called the fathers of the faith articulated these things so that everyone could understand how they explain someone like Jesus. On 451 AD, the early church fathers had a council called the Council of Chalcedon, and here's what they wrote. They wrote that Jesus is recognized in two natures, God and man, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, they're using some incredible, powerful words. We've always been mesmerized by Jesus. 
we've always been astounded by who he is and why he came and what he did while he was on planet Earth. What this means is simply that there's nothing that you can experience in life that's more mesmerizing, more powerful, more precious, more beautiful, more glorious, or better in any way than experiencing Jesus. That's so important for you to realize. Now, I'm an older guy speaking to some younger people in the room. Some of you are younger. And I have lived and enjoyed life and had great experiences and been blessed. I have an incredible wife, some wonderful kids. I've, over the years, known some wonderful people. But as great and as awesome and as wonderful as life or education or opportunities are, all that compels in comparison to having the mesmerizing experience of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's just so important that you know that today. And the Bible tells us that there will never be an experience like Jesus. Now, the world will say that you're supposed to be seeking this and that and something else to fulfill you and to satisfy you. But the Bible says, for in him all the fullness dwells in bodily form, and in him you are complete. You're not going to be complete until you are mesmerized by Jesus, until you embrace who Jesus is, until you know who Jesus is. That's when you will be complete. So John says, here's what he became. And then John says, here's what we saw. Notice what it says at the bottom part of verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw, we saw his glory. The word saw there doesn't mean simply to see it with the eyes, but to experience it. It means to behold, to wonder, to view attentively, to contemplate, to study. John said, we beheld, we examined, we looked with discernment, we did everything we could to understand. And we were amazed by what we saw and who we understood him to be. Years later, John writes in 1 John, the epistles of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And in 1 John, he opens up with two verses, verse 1 and 2, chapter 1. And here's what he says. Years later, wanting everybody else to know what he experienced, he said this. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life was manifested and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us through Jesus. John says, look, I've lived a long time now and I'm writing letters back to all those that I've known over the years. Let me just tell you, what I experienced, what I saw, what I touched, what I heard, what I knew was real, that's Jesus and that's who you need. That's what he said. That's what he said. And that's why John was so motivated for everyone to know about Jesus. And that's why we're motivated for everybody that doesn't know Jesus to know Jesus and to be mesmerized by the reality of who he is. This is the real deal. This is not virtual reality. So John says, here's what we saw. We saw his glory. We saw his glory. Now the word glory just simply means a reflection of something even greater. This morning I was out walking early in the morning and enjoyed my walk because today was clearer after a really dark and stormy day yesterday, right? So the clouds were gone. It was kind of cool out this morning, and I was walking before the sun came up. And I was looking for the sun to come up in the east, and I looked back to the west when I was walking in that direction. I saw the moon brilliantly illuminated and full. 
as it was down on the horizon. And I looked at that moon for a while and I thought, you know, that moon's light is brilliant. Then I realized that moon doesn't have any light at all. It orbits in a dark space. The only light that that moon has is the reflection from the sun. And so in a way, the moon is reflecting the glory of a huge ball of fire called the sun. And it wasn't even up yet. So the word glory means to reflect a greater light, like the moon was reflecting the sun, except in this case. Jesus was not reflecting God's glory from a distance. He was reflecting God's glory from within. This is the glory of God walking in a person. This is the glory of God in living out the character of God in his teachings, in his statements, in his mercy, in his love, in his compassion. This is the Jesus who is fully showing us the glory of God. And John saw, said, we saw his glory. Everywhere Jesus went, everything he said, everything he did displayed God's glory. He manifested decidedly unhuman characteristics and unnatural, supernatural power through miracle working. He was greater than any superhero that you'll ever find in any movie genre. He was the real deal. Everything else we look at and pay to see is virtual reality. This is the real thing. This is Jesus, God in the flesh. And we're mesmerated by his life, by his teaching. He cast demons out of people that had been destroying those people. He calmed storms. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. We saw his glory. But John saw, said also, he said, not only did we see his glory, but his glory was full of grace. The word grace is such a great word. Because the word grace is position opposite the law in the Bible. The law is you've got to do certain things in order to please God. The perspective is you've got to do these things to please God. And all world religions except Christianity believes that if you don't do those things, you cannot please God. You'll be separated from him forever and you'll have no chance at eternity worthwhile unless you do all these things, the law. But the Bible says in Jesus, we found grace. Grace means the favor of God. Grace means that it's given to us as a gift, not as a reward for our efforts. It's not that you get God's grace when you do enough good things. It's that you get God's grace because he is a good God and loves you, because he has compassion, because he has mercy on your heart and your life. That's how you get the grace of God. It's given to you. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. None of us do. You can't be religious enough or good enough. It's only given as a gift from Jesus himself. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace. You're going to love this word grace in life. You need this word grace in life. Did you know that every other religion, world religion, operates on the basis of a law? And that law is that you must work in order to gain approval with whatever God it is that they're saying that you should worship. Hinduism believes in a series of good existence work, working in a good way to improve your existence. Islam teaches you that you must work in order to please Allah. You go to Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and other sectarian groups that have branched off away from Christianity. It's all works. It's all you. It's all on you. It's all you, you go because you're worthy or you're not and you can't be worthy. Only Christianity says... No, there's a thing called grace. 
And the thing is that God loves his people so much that he's a willing God, willing to forgive and willing to bridge the gap that we can't cross on our own by giving us a gift of eternal life. There are two clear pictures that Jesus demonstrated grace in all of his teachings and all of his statements. The first word I want to give you is the word Father, where Jesus used the phrase, my Father, 127 times referring to God the Father. He says, my Father in heaven. He said, my Father and I are one. He said, I do all those things that please my Father. Jesus and God, the Father and the Son, were one together. They were working in harmony, walking in harmony. But Jesus also used the word our Father 30 times in the New Testament. You know what he said to his disciples? He said, I want you to learn to pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So here's what Jesus was saying. And here's what it has to do with grace. Jesus is saying, I have a relationship with my Father. And I'm going to help you have a relationship with my Father. And he is going to become our Father. And it's going to happen by grace and not by religion and not by good work. It's going to happen because you're going to come through me and I'm going to die on a cross and pay for your sin. And as you come to me and accept me for who I am, I'm going to help you to know our Father. Well, what a powerful thing it is. And the Bible says that when we come to faith in Jesus, we've not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption by where we cry, Abba, Father. The most sensitive way we can say Father. The most intimate way we can say Father. So it's about Father, but it's also about forgiveness. If you can't see in the life of Jesus his willingness to forgive sin, read it again. Read the Gospels again. Because the forgiveness of sin that Jesus extended to people was literally an extension of grace. Think of the adulterous woman. The woman caught in adultery where the religious Pharisees came and dragged her before Jesus and quoted the Old Testament law and said, the law says to stone her. Of course, the man wasn't present, just a woman. Somehow the setup took place for the Pharisees to trap Jesus. And Jesus said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And of course, eventually they all walked away because they knew they all had sinned. And then he said, woman, get up, go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. He forgave her. He gave her a new start in life. That's the picture of forgiveness and grace from the Father. But when Jesus was crucified on the cross, remember there were two others that died that day on crosses as well. There was a thief on one side and on the other. And on one side, the thief was mocking him. If you saved others, why can't you save yourself? But on the other side of the cross was a man who recognized Jesus for who he was, who paid attention to what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And here's what he said. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you shall be with me in paradise. Let me tell you about that thief on the cross. He could do nothing to earn his salvation. He could do nothing to become religious. He could do nothing to wipe away his life of crime for which he was being crucified. But Jesus declared him to be forgiven and therefore was able to be in paradise with Jesus. So grace is the declaration of forgiveness that only comes through Jesus the Son. That's powerful. So let me just tell you, I want you to have this mesmerizing experience of not knowing virtual reality of God, but knowing the absolute reality of God in his person through Jesus Christ. I want you to know it. I want you to know God as Father. I want you to know forgiveness. I want you to know grace. All those things Jesus came to give you, I want you to have those things. 
And I'm going to tell you that if you don't have those things, you won't find anything better in all of life than him. You know, one of the things that grace says to us is this. You can come to me. You can come to me. Don't you love the idea of a God who is eternal, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, who says, come to me. Come to me. I'm not going to make it hard. I'm not going to make it difficult. I'm going to take care of it by paying the price. You can come to me. You know what other world religions say about a God coming near and a God interceding for us and sacrificing his own self for us? You know what other religions say about that? Nothing. No one in Islam dies for you. No one in Hinduism dies for you, gives their life. No one in Buddhism lays their life down as a sacrifice for your sin. No one in all the world's religions except Christianity has a Savior who came from heaven to down a cross to pay for your sin and give you life. And people from Buddhism are coming to faith in Jesus. People from Islam are coming to faith in Jesus because they are searching and he is being found by them. I want you to listen to the story that we captured on video. So I grew up in a Muslim family um, with a high influence of Iranian culture. I felt confined in senses because um, you have to pray a certain way you have to face a certain direction. Otherwise, it was like God wouldn't hear your prayers. And so when I entered into the sixth grade, I befriended this girl named Andy in percussion class. I noticed Andy and I, we were alike, but we were super different. We both loved God. Um, but the way she loved God was different than the way I did. And it seemed like she had something with God that I was missing out on. And I had such envy and jealousy toward Andy's relationship with God um, that I wanted to prove to her that always can lead to God and that me being a Muslim, um, I can be just as close to God as she is. I decided my junior year of high school to fast for Ramadan. And I remember I got on my hands and knees and I told God, I said, I'm doing this for you and I want to show you my love. And all I wanted in return during my one month fast was I wanted to hear something from God to validate my belief in God and to validate that I can do things to earn the love of God. And at the end of my fast for Ramadan, to my dismay, I did hear the voice of God, but he clearly said in and of your own self, you can't do anything to get close to me. And I was, I was just heartbroken and I was mad at the same time. December 4th of 2005, um, my manager told me he has a play for me to go to. And I, in excitement, was like, I'm down, let's go. Is it Phantom of the Opera? Like, what is it? And he told me, no, it's from my church. He said, it's the Gospel of Luke and um, I want you to come. I said, I'm never gonna come to that play. There's no way I'm coming, sorry. He said, at least come for the buffet package. So we went into this play and toward the end of the play, when I saw the man portraying Jesus on the cross, I heard the same voice I heard back when I fasted for Ramadan. And that voice was the Lord. And he said, 
I have my hand outstretched to you. Stop running away and draw near to me, and I'll give you rest. And so I did. At that moment, I gave my life to him. And it, it brings me back to that moment when I fasted back in Ramadan. Like the Lord said in and of my own self, I could do nothing to get close to him. It's because he made the way. That way was Jesus. Jesus is, he is the one and the only. He's the way and he's the truth and the life. And that was when I was 19 and I'm 33 now. And God has saved my sister, my mom, my dad. He saved my grandmother when she was 68 years of age. So God has just been faithful and good. Wow. Thank you, Samara, for letting us hear a little bit about your story and there's more to be told. What a powerful statement of how God enlightens people to see Jesus, the one and only, and that's what's happened in Samara's life. So John said, just what Samara basically said, and that is we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know what John means by truth? John means divine truth as opposed to all the pagan fables. In other words, Jesus is not a type. Jesus is not just a symbol. He's not a likeness. He's not a prophet. He's not a teacher. He's not an angel. He is the Word in the flesh, the Word incarnate. He is God incarnate. He is grace incarnate. He is truth incarnate. If you want to know truth, look at Jesus. If you want to know about what's real, look at Him. And John also said, Amazingly, he said, he existed before me. He's eternal. He's not of this world. So look for yourself. In the same way John looked at Jesus and you see what he saw, you look. And you look for his glory and you look for his grace and you look for his truth and you look at his coexistence with God the Father. It's amazing what you'll discover. You'll discover the glory of God in the life of Jesus. You'll discover the grace of Jesus that forgives you of sin and gives you eternal life. And what does all this mean? In verse 18, John ends his statement by saying, here's what it all means. He says in verse 18, it all means this, that he has explained him. Jesus explains in the fullest possible way who God is is. You know, there are times when I know people wander out there. Is anybody out there, please, can they, can they please explain God to me? Can they please explain the mystery of God and the sovereignty of God and the ways of God and the, the righteousness of God or the grace of God? Can somebody explain this to me? And Jesus said, I can. Yeah. And not only can I do it, but I did do it for three years. And if you look at me, you look at a father that loved you so much that he was willing to let his son, God in the flesh, die on a cross to pay for your sin. Jesus said, I can immerse you in God. Let me tell you what this means to you today. It means that every other God is remote and every other God is invisible and unresponsive and silent and unreproachable, uncaring and unloving and ultimately non-existent except Jesus who points us to the one true God. That's what it means. Years ago, years ago, an author was writing an article on the incarnation of God and he made this statement, this paragraph. And so I want to read this paragraph to you as I close today. And let me tell you what this man said. Joseph Schumann is his name. He said, the incarnation, that is the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh, 
displays the greatness of God. Our God is the eternal God who was born in a stable, not a distant, withdrawn God. Our God is a humble, giving God, not a selfish, grabbing God. Our God is a purposeful, planning God, not a random, reactionary God. Our God is a God who is far above us and whose ways are not our ways, not a God we can put in a box and control. Our God is a God who redeems us by his blood, not a God who leaves us in our sin. Our God is a great God above all the earth. And that's true today. And so let me just ask you this one penetrating question as I finish this message. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? You see, the important thing for you to know is that one who worships a God who is not the God does not have salvation. But one who worships the true God whom Jesus Christ has revealed, they have salvation. They have eternal life. And anyone who wants, no matter what background they're from, no matter what they've done, how badly their lives have gone, or how well their lives have gone, they can be religious or irreligious. They can be knowledgeable about the Bible or know nothing about the Bible. But if they take a look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you are the Son of the living God. You are God in the flesh. You are my Savior and my Lord. You say that, my friend, then you have the gift of eternal life. Today, I want you to come to grips with who Jesus is. Who do you say he is? Would you bow your head for a moment? And as we bow our heads, our counselors are coming forward. This is the time of decision that we have every week. We worship the Lord through a song, a brief moment, a time where we sing and just worship because of who he is, because of what he's revealed to us, because of what he's done in our lives. But it's also a time of decision for those who've said, you know, I don't know that I have ever made a decision to follow Jesus that way. I don't know if I've ever embraced who he says he is. And if you've never embraced who he says he is, if you've never asked him to be your Savior and your Lord, then I want to encourage you today to make that decision. Walk a very short trip, a very short distance to one of these individuals standing at the front. And here's what they'll do. They'll answer your questions and they'll lead you in a prayer. And that prayer will give you an opportunity to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who he really is, and to receive the grace of God. Father, today in Jesus' name, speak to us, motivate us, move us. Father, if we do not embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior up to this point, help us cross that line, make that decision, and allow you to be recognized in our lives for who you really are. Today, I pray for those that are reluctant, that are, that are doubting, that wonder, those that don't know if they've ever made this decision before. Lord, give them the clarity they need and the courage they need to step forward and take a stand on who you are. Today, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? And as we stand, we sing, we worship, and we respond.